Amen. Boy, he is worthy to be lifted up. And I think that song not only lifts him up, I think it gets us up, doesn't it? That gets us. You get you going. Scott got to dancing so much back here. Scott, you're tearing up my bushes. You, you were, your feet were going and this thing came flying out. Gosh. You know, God said Baptists weren't supposed to dance and you tear the bushes up. Would you take that over to Scott? Give that to him. There we go. Oh, yeah, we're here at church, aren't we? I forgot. Good to see everybody this morning. Hope you have lifted the Savior up in your life and your heart. We are here to do just that, to do that now by opening His Word. You see there on the, the sermon title that my title today is to be filled up with God. That's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? To be, to be filled up with God. Sounds like a good idea anyway. We may not be entirely sure of, of what it means, but it's probably something good. We probably have a, a wide range of varying ideas of what it means to be filled up with God. I'm sure a lot of us would say, well, you know, that's, that's the goal of life, you know, to be filled up with God, to be God-controlled, God-conscious, God-directed. We'd say that's the, the goal of life. I could imagine some people saying, you know, I'm, I'm sure that's good, but, you know, not entirely practical for me right now. I mean, you know, with, with a world of deadlines and bills and problems in relationships and problems at work, you know, start talking about being filled up with God, it just kind of gets mystical. I, I'm sure it's good, but I'm not sure what it would have for, for me today. And then to others, they might say, you know, to be filled up with God, that's the, that's the road to happiness and success. I think that's certainly how it's sold by some people today. You know, you get filled up with God and it means more money, more happiness, more healing, more blessing, just more of life for me. You know, it's interesting as you think about, if you imagine in your mind, what does it look like when somebody's filled up with God? I think you'll find that from person to person and maybe even religion to religion, our ideas of what it means to be filled up with God are actually kind of self-centered. I don't necessarily mean self-centered in a, you know, you're in an awful, selfish, mean person way. I just mean that our, our idea of being filled up with God usually is for our benefit. It, it means more of something for me. I come out ahead. You know, whether it is more life or more happiness or, or more blessings or more of God, it's, it's me that is advanced. And I really believe that when God fills us up, it's not to make life about us. When God fills us up, it's not to make life about us. So let's kind of rephrase that question and say, you know, what does it mean to be filled up with God? What does that mean there's more of? I mean, when we think of full, we think there's, there's more of something. What is there more of in my life when my life is filled up with God? I think we'll see an answer to that question in Ephesians chapter 3. Would you look there with me this morning? We're continuing and, and next week we're going to kind of start going in a new direction with Ephesians 4. But we've been continuing now for about three sermons on this idea of Jew and Gentile being one. And I've been telling you that while that's Paul's focus, these two major subgroups of people on the planet, Jews and Gentiles are everybody else. That it's, it's more than just Jew and Gentile. It's bringing all subgroups, all peoples together. And not only does it deal with, with gender and race and nationality, but it's going to deal with our personal relationships. Because as Paul deals with this oneness, as he begins to apply that to our daily lives in Ephesians 4 and beyond, you'll see it's in all of our relationships. 
And so our oneness, now remember we're talking about believers, our oneness is in that we hold on to the same Savior. We have access to God through Jesus. Jesus has reconciled us to God and He has reconciled us to each other. And it is that to each other that Paul begins to pray about. So let's look at that. Ephesians 3, verse 14. It says there, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that He may grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, and that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. And to know this Messiah's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in you, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's second prayer now in just these first three chapters of this letter to the Ephesians. The first prayer you might remember was back in Ephesians 1 and verse 15. And in that prayer, Paul prayed about us having a more intimate relationship with God and experiencing the the power of God. And now we arrive here at this second prayer, and it is the fifth of our eight very long sentences in this book. That's right, 14 through 21 in the Greek language is just one sentence. So now if you'll remember, piece this together, that makes chapter 3 a whopping two sentences. Look at that. Chapter 3 is a lot of words in my Bible. That is just two sentences in the Greek language. And you look at this prayer and you, you see a lot of words. You'll see a lot of phrases and ideas. But in actuality, there's just one simple prayer request in everything we just read. And that prayer request is that God would strengthen believers in the inner man. That God would strengthen us in the inner man. Now, why would we need to be strengthened? Well, because there's this task before us. You see, while it is spiritually true that Jew and Gentile are one, that you and I as believers are one, while God has declared that because we hold on to the same Savior, Practically speaking, it takes a little work to bring out that oneness, to live that oneness. I tell you, a great illustration of that for me is marriage. And I tell couples all the time, there's going to come that point in the ceremony where you will be declared husband and wife. You will be declared one in the eyes of God. But most marriages know that while that officially happens right there in that moment, it takes an entire marriage. To develop that oneness, to grow that oneness, to experience it and enjoy it. And matter of fact, it's God's word that tells us how to experience and enjoy that oneness. And the letter to the Ephesians is a book that gives us a lot of specific instruction on how a man and a woman achieve that oneness in marriage. And we're going to get to that, I think, in about September or so, give or take a week. So you, you be here for that. Well, what is true in a marriage is true between Jew and Gentile. It's true between you and I. By our holding on to the same Savior, you and I, all these subgroups in the world that are believers, we are one. But you know what? Sometimes our prejudices, our hurts, our problems, our attitudes keep us separated from some of these other believers. And we don't enjoy, we don't live out, we don't develop the oneness that we are to have 
with all believers. And Paul in this prayer is basically saying, I'm praying you get over it. (laughs) I'm praying we get that worked out. Now, you know, I start thinking about this and, you know, this is a passage I think we could come to and say, you know, this is this is kind of extracurricular, isn't it? And this is this is not what I need to grow in the Lord right now. You know, I got to be one with believers in Tanzania. Oh, I got to fill a bond with believers in Asia. Oh, I got to fill a bond with all the believers in the in the community. I, you know, I'm sure that's an important idea. I'm sure that's a, a good idea. Not what I need this week. You know what? It may be the single most important thing you need this week. You know, we tend to approach God. We talked about this, this self, the self-centeredness as what's going on in my life. Listen, God's not going to bless us as individuals if I'm not a part of, or even worse, I'm working against what he's doing in the whole. What, what, what Paul is showing us here through this last half of chapter 2 and chapter 3 is God's work in this world is to bring us together as believers and to build that sanctuary, to build that temple of praise. Not a temple of bricks and sticks, but a temple of people. We are the building. We are what gives Him glory. And yes, God is building this. He may put you on the wall next to somebody you're not entirely comfortable with. You may be nearby somebody that has actually offended you or hurt you. You know what? I need to work. Not just, yeah, I know we need to love everybody. No, no. I need to be very disciplined. I need to be very focused on how I become one with other believers. And that's what Paul's praying about here, specifically believers in these different subgroups that we've broken up ourselves into all over this over this planet. So Paul starts to pray here. And in verse 14, he says, for this reason. Now, the reason that he's bowing and praying, the reason goes back to chapter two, verse 11. And that's that whole thought on Jew and Gentile being one. He's kind of picking up. You remember we said last week when we looked at 1 to 13, that was a digression. He came into chapter 3 ready to pray, but then he digressed. And and he went back on that idea of Jew and Gentile and said, let let me tell you where I got that message from. Let me tell you why I feel a, a sense of responsibility and urgency to communicate that. And he told us what? We were partners. In this life-saving news of Jesus Christ. We're partners in sending out this message of oneness in Christ Jesus. And now that he, he got that out of his system, he comes back and he begins to pray. And he says here, I bow my knees. Now, you'd probably expect that to be a, a pretty common phrase in the Bible, wouldn't you? I mean, when we think of prayer, we think of getting on our knees and bowing. That's why it's kind of surprising to hear that that word bow only appears four times in the New Testament. Only four times do we see somebody bowing on their knees to pray. It always is in prayer. Every time we see that word, it's in in worship. It's in submission to God. But only four times. The truth is, God doesn't prescribe one position for prayer. You know, you've got to be in this position to make prayer count. You've got to be in this position for prayer to be official. As a matter of fact, we go through the Bible and we see people praying, standing up. We see them bowing. We see them bowing with their hands up. We see them bowing with their head between their knees. We see them sitting. We see them lying face down or prostrate, as the Scripture says, before the Lord. So there's all kinds of positions. None makes prayer more effective or work. But you know what I think you'll find in your life? That at different times, different positions actually help your prayer. They're they're, they're a part of how you pray. They, they, They help you communicate. You know, I've said before... And I don't I don't do it in a whole lot of other places. And it, I didn't do it. I didn't start doing it until I became a, a pastor. Uh, but I, when I became a pastor and I started preaching, 
I started praying on my face. And, and to this day, I have never walked in this room to preach without about 15 or 20 minutes earlier, I was in my office laying down on my face. And, and I do that for, for two reasons. I do that to communicate in two different directions. One, it helps me to communicate to God because really there's very little in life that makes me feel more unworthy than to come in here and do this right here. To proclaim God's Word. To proclaim God's Word to God's people. I feel wholly unworthy for that task. You know, there, there's when, when I think about what... I want to happen what you want to happen in this room and what I know more importantly what God wants to happen and to think I might be a conduit of that all I can see is how I might mess that up how I might be a hindrance to what he wants to do in here and, and so when I go to God to pray there's something about laying down on my face that just helps me to communicate to God that the sense of unworthiness I feel the sense of, of total helplessness I feel at bringing about what what we want to see happen in this room during this time. And, and there's something about that position, physically speaking, that helps my verbal speaking make more sense. But you know, there's something about that position that not only communicates to God, I need that position to communicate to me. That position reminds me that as I come in here and do this, you know what, Randy, this isn't about you. It's not about the work you did to get to this spot. It's not about how creative it is or how uncreative it is. It's not about whether you do a good job or a bad job. It's not about what people think. It's just period. It's not about you at all. And there's something about that position that reminds me I'm nothing more than a messenger. I didn't make up this message. I'm not the message creator. I'm not the message uh, uh, giver. I'm just a messenger. That position reminds me I am a slave. That's it. I am nothing more than a slave who's bringing a message from a king. And there's something about physically speaking doing that. And I need that. I need to be reminded of that every time I walk into this room. So positions are very much a part of how we pray. And you should try praying on your knees. And you should try praying laying face down. The Jew often prayed standing up. That's probably not something we, we try very often either. But to, to pray standing up, fully engaged with the Lord. We try these different positions, realizing, though, that no one position makes prayer work. It's what is going on in our heart. Paul says here he bows his knee and he prays to the Father. You know, I've told you before that in the Jewish mind, God had not really been revealed as Father. As a matter of fact, I'll give you some interesting trivia here. In the Old Testament, God is addressed 1,448 times, specifically addressed or talked to. Only 15 times, that's 1%, I'll save you the math. Only 15 times in those addresses is he referred to as the Father. Now, when we get into the New Testament, Jesus comes revealing to us a, this, this new personal intimate relationship. The Jew often related to God as a nation, as a people, as a race. But now God is, Jesus is introducing him as a father and we're a child. There's that more personal, there's that more intimate relationship relationship and so what happens is now in the new testament out of 413 times that god is directly addressed 245 of them are as father in other words 59% that's a big swing isn't it from 1% of the time to 59% of the time he's referred to as father now, there's something very important we understand about this phrase before the father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, because part of what is happening here is a little bit different than everything I just told you about how God has been revealed as our father. 
When, when the New Testament talks about God being revealed as our, our father and we're his child, the word for father there is Abba. You remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to Abba, Father. And in Romans chapter 8, we are introduced to our father, Abba, who has adopted us. And so the word for father that talks about that close relationship, that word Abba actually translated dad or even daddy, is the word that implies that salvation, that implies that direct relationship between a father and a child. But the word Abba is not the one used right here. The word right here is patera. As a matter of fact, there's a little bit of a word pray because you see the word father and family. Paul is praying to the patera about the patria. And what this idea of father means, this is the father that goes at the top of a lineage, at the top of a line of descendants. Now, obviously, a family is related, but it's not intimacy. It's not a, a specific relationship. It just says, like in my family, Thomas Hahn is, is at the top of the descendants. I don't know Thomas Hahn. I never talked to Thomas Hahn. He was a long, long, long time ago in Kansas. But, but that's at the top of our, of our lineage, at the, of, of the Hahn family. And that's kind of what this is here. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it. What's Paul praying about? He's praying, I pray all these subgroups. The Tanzanians, the Asian, the Chinese, the American believers. I pray all these subgroups, Father, that you are the originator of, that you're the source of, you're the one who started and provided, created all these different subgroups. I'm praying to you as the source of that, that you would bring all these believers together as one. Now, why is it important that we know this distinction here between patera, this just head of a lineage, and the source, the originator, versus Abba, that more intimate term? Because we live in a world today that believes in universalism. We're all going to heaven. Anybody ever heard the phrase, God is the, the father of all, and we're all God's children. I mean, we may call him by different names. We may make our way up the mountain in a little bit different way. But we're all serving the same God. We're all worshiping the same God. We're all going to get there. He is the Father to us all. And they might even come to the Christian Bible, the New Testament, and say, Well, look, there's a verse right there that says it. He's the Father of all families. Well, first of all, he's talking about believers in this passage. But this is not the Father of salvation. This is Father, the source of the originator of all these people groups. But it is not implying that each of these people is actually a child of Abba Father. There's a very big difference. Abba is more that focus on salvation. Patera is more that focus on sovereignty or his being over all the families of the earth. So this is not a verse that says everybody on the planet's a child of God. And, and he's the father and we're all just one big family who, who call him by a little bit different name. That is not what these words are saying. So Paul is praying here. He bows on his knees to the father from whom all these families descended. He's the one that created us in these different ways. And he's praying about this oneness. And he says, I pray that you may grant according to the riches of his glory. That word according is pretty important. You know why? It's according to the riches. You know, if I have, um, let's say I have $10 billion, and, and, and I don't, if you're wondering. Uh, let's say I have $10 billion, and you come to me with a need. And, and for some reason, I, I have a sense of obligation to you or a, a sense of responsibility. I mean, you come to, the, you, you know, you expect to get something. And, and so I've got $10 billion, you come with this need, and I give you a dollar bill. Now, have I given you something from my wealth? Yeah. 
Have I given you something of my wealth? Yes, I have. Have I given you according to my wealth? Oh my gosh, no. You just got way ripped off if I gave you a dollar. And I've got ten billion. Man, you, 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 need to, you need to feel ripped off. You need to feel like I did you wrong. Because I did not give you according to what I had. When Paul says, I want you to give according to your riches. We you know what Paul's teaching us here? Pray boldly. Pray boldly. Don't ask for a little bit. Ask for a lot. Pray boldly to God. God, give them, grant them according in, in the amount of the great wealth that you have. Now, he's not praying for money here. This is not about money. He's praying for us to have an abundance of inner strength. God, would you provide for them abundantly an inner strength? He's praying that you and I as believers would have an inner strength, an abundant inner strength to love other believers. Certainly other believers in our own church family, believers in the community, primarily the focus in this passage, believers from all these subgroups that we've got ourselves broken up into on the planet. Notice it's an inner strength. You know, it makes obvious sense. Physical strength is pretty much worthless when it comes to making a, a relationship work. How strong you are physically has nothing to do with building a relationship. That's an inner strength. And, and what is this inner strength? Well, it's our character, isn't it? God, would you strengthen their character? Because, because there are prejudices to overcome. There are attitudes to overcome. There is people's sin against us to overcome. Give me a strength and, a, and an abundant depth of character. Sometimes we've got to pray for the want to. Inner strength, that's our motivation, isn't it? Our desire. God, would you abundantly strengthen them to be motivated to love abundantly strengthen them to have a desire to love believers. What happens when we get that inner strength? What happens when you and I begin to move toward other believers to love other believers? Well, it says here that the Messiah may dwell in your hearts. It's kind of interesting that word dwell. We know that when we ask Jesus Christ to be our Savior and Lord, when we place our faith and our trust in Him, He comes to live in our lives. He comes to live in our heart. This word dwell has the idea of permanent residency, of, of putting down stakes. I'm staying here. Uh, this, I'm making this place a home. I'm not just living here. I'm, I'm making this place a home. And so when you think about what Paul's asking for, it's like he's praying, God, I pray that they will relate with each other. That they will relate with other believers in a way that you feel at home in their heart. That's a wild thought, isn't it? Have you ever thought that the way I am relating to, seeking to love, and treating other believers has the opportunity to make Christ feel more and more at home in my life? Or, or it has the opportunity to have Christ say, you know, I'm awfully committed to living here, but I'm going to be honest with you, I'm sure not comfortable. This sure isn't a very, you know, been in there like a hotel or some other place. You just, you know, you're staying there, but it's not comfortable. It's not you. You know, the only idea that the Scripture refers to like this, that Christ would be living in me but not really enjoying it, is the way I'm relating with other believers. Man. You see, this is not extracurricular. This is not, you know, when you, when you get all the other stuff resolved, this is the next level of trying to grow in the Christian life. Man, this is one of the very first things. 
It is loving other believers, all other believers, that not only brings Christ into our life, but enables Him to feel at home there. And that's tough. And that's why Paul talks here about about us comprehending, trying to comprehend. Now, he says that that the Messiah's love surpasses knowledge. We can't fully embrace God's love. We can't fully get our, our mind and our arms around it. It's just incredible. It's too big. As we talked about several weeks ago, to think about the power of the love of God that brings all these people groups together. You know, our, our youth just got to be in, uh, in Athens, in Greece these last couple of weeks. And, you know, it's interesting when you go to these places, prejudice is not an American issue. There is prejudice every square inch of this planet. And there's this people group that hates this people group. And one of the things they, were, they, they discovered is America has kind of sided on this one people group. And, and so now a lot of the Greeks, they hate Americans because they think you sided with this other people group. We hate that people group. Why? Because we've always hated that people group. Now, again, as far as politics go, that's one thing. But let me tell you something. When a believer from this people, when a person from this group becomes a believer and a person from this people group becomes a believer, God's primary will in their lives is to bring these two people together. And that they together become a temple of worship. They together become a house of praise. That's why I'm saying we're looking for all these places in our life for God to individually bless us. But if I'm not joining God in what He's doing, I'm keeping my prejudices and my hates and my hurts in place. Tell you something, Christ is not going to feel at home in my life. But when I stop and think about, you know, maybe I've got to remove myself from this for a second. But I think, man, God's love can bring that believer together and can bring this believer together. I think it was what, Karen, was it Turks and Greeks? Yeah, man, God can bring a Turkish believer. God can bring a Greek believer together. Man, God's love is awesome. I mean, God's love is broad enough that it embraces all the people groups of the planet. God's love is long enough that it reaches from eternity to eternity. God's love is high enough that it can carry us into the heavens. God's love goes down deep enough that it can rescue any one individual from the deepest depths of sin and and death and hell. Man, God's love is great. And Paul's ideas, and the more that I, I focus my mind on this, the more that I meditate on this, that that love then of God becomes the motivation in my life to begin to take on that love. And what results? Look at it there. The fullness of God at the end of verse 19. When I focus on this, when that begins to happen in my life, the result is, is that I get filled up with God. Now, our question was, what is there more of when I get filled up with God? According to this passage, when I get filled up with God, what I get filled up with is love for others because that's what God does. When God's filling me up, what's He going to do inside of me? He is going to love others because that is who he is and that is what he does. So you see, now I've got a little bit of a barometer in my life. I get to look at how I love others and I get to see how much of God there is really inside filling and controlling my life. You say, I don't know. I I can't I can't do that. I, I can't do that with that individual because of what they've done. I you know, I, I, I don't know, my attitude toward that people group or I don't know, I just can't do that. Sure you can. All you got to do is pray. Oh, I don't know. No, no, it's what it says right here in 21. God is able to do more than you can ask or think. 
You know, these are two of my favorite verses in the Bible. That's the first passage I, I preached on when I came to this church. And I think you can take those two verses and broadly apply them. Anything that you pray about, let me tell you something, God can, can do so much more than you can even begin to ask or think. But while that can be broadly applied, there is a specific context. There's loving other believers. I think you know what this passage is saying is I can just bring myself to the place of saying, God, could you make it so that I don't throw up when I see that person? Now, that's my best effort. That's not asking God for very much, is it? But you know what God is saying? Man, if you'll just begin to pray to me about these difficult relationships in your life, let me tell you something. I can do so much more through your life. I can do so much more in bringing oneness together than you could even possibly begin to know how to pray. Then, then you could even possibly begin to understand what to pray and why. Why does he want to do that? You see how this wraps up now what we've been learning in chapter 2 and 3. So that according to this power that works in you, the power of God's love, to him be the glory in the what? In the church and in Christ Jesus. When all of us as believers are holding on to him, we become one. Then the church gives him glory. We give him glory in the way we love. You know, these two verses are awfully exciting, kind of motivating. But I want to tell you something. When you read them in this context, they're kind of challenging. Because they help me to realize, you know what? When I'm not loving, when I'm not forgiving, when I'm holding on to hurts, when I'm holding on to prejudices, the problem's not the other person. And the problem's not the ability for God to work in my life. Because He can do a whole lot more than I can ask or think. The problem is me. The problem, when we get real honest here, folks, is I don't want God to love that person. I don't want God to forgive that person. Folks, when we are in that place, and I think if we're honest at times, those seeds are running around deep in there. We've really stepped into a dangerous spot when we start telling God who He can and can't love. After we, remember the beginning of chapter 2? After we so undeservedly became the recipients of, His God, of God's love. And now we step into that position and tell him, I don't want you to love that, that people group. I don't want you to love that nation. I don't want you to forgive that person. Christ is not at home in that life. And when he's not at home there, you're not going to enjoy his power. You're not going to know his guidance. You're not going to know his blessing. You're not going to know his direction. And folks, we're we're talking about a core here of walking with God. We're talking about the core here of following, being a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not extracurricular. So so what do we do with this prayer? I think we need to do a couple of things. Number one, we need to do what it says. I need to think about how much God loves people. Now, you know what? We can throw off that first idea there. Oh, yeah, I know. God loves people. I mean, that's not news. You know, if you've ever been been in church more than three times, you've probably heard that. God loves people. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that you and I need to discipline ourselves to weekly, maybe daily, look at people. Now, yes, all believers, but maybe even primarily those ones that you have a harder time with, those ones you're not as comfortable with, those ones that are not like you, those ones that have hurt you. You need to practice the discipline of looking at them and saying, you know what? God loves them. I don't know why you do, Lord, but God loves them. You know, I think that's where it really begins. I've got to say to myself, not, oh, God loves everybody. No, God loves that person who makes my workplace horrific. I wish they weren't a believer, but they are. God loves them. 
And then I think, second, we, you know, we go to the next level. We pray about it. God, would you change my attitude? Would you change how I look at these people that I have a hard time with? And just begin. You know, you don't have to pray the certain prayer, a fancy prayer, right? God, would you enable me today to die for that person? No, that's, that's probably more than we can ask. But you know what? If we bring any kind of prayer about this to God, we already know He can do more than we can ask or think. Just begin a process of trusting that relationship to Him. Third, we begin to go to that next level and we pray for abundant. Abundant strength to abundantly love. You know, as you look at this, what Paul's praying for here, this inner strength and the abundance of it, you realize the goal here, folks, is not neutrality. The goal is not being, you know, just to be able to put up with somebody. Not, not leave the room when they enter the room. The goal is not being neutral. Love's not neutral. Love is action. We're not praying, oh God, would you give me a warm fuzzy and an ooey gooey feeling every time I see that person or that people group. That's not what we're praying for. This is an action. Love acts and it acts in what's, in what's good for them. So that's the next thing we do as we pray for that inner strength. We step out on faith. Not because we feel like it, not because it feels good, but we step out on faith and we do an act of love. We do something that is for their good, for their benefit. You know, the first good thing you may do for them, they may not even know you're doing it. The first good thing you do for them may be just that you say a prayer. You ask God to bless that person. And that may be all you can do at the moment before you, you, know, you have to run away and take a nap or something because that just wore you out. That's why we pray for inner strength because it does wear us out to love people sometimes. But you know what? When you and I will do this, you know what happens? I can look around in my life and I can see this love beginning to take place. And I say, hey, you know what? I am filled up with God. My life is being filled with God. I am a part of what He is doing in this world. And when I have that, I've got the confidence, hey, you know what? He is going to work and He is going to bless in my individual life. I'm not saying that should be the motive, but that is a blessing because that is what we want, isn't it? I want God to bless my individual life. And God is saying, well, why don't you come over to where I am? Why don't you become a part of what I'm doing in this world? And then I'll become a part of what you're doing in your world. Let's pray. Lord, it's really kind of amazing when we step back and think about it, how really very few people there are that we find easy to love. And and that doesn't necessarily change when that individual or those people become believers. Probably a lot of us think of ourselves as very loving people And yet we probably have a pretty small circle of who we actually love. Who we actually move and act in their good and in their benefit. Lord, we've allowed ourselves to stay broken up into pretty small subgroups. God, would you let us see that your dominating plan in this world is to bring believers together as one. That we overcome our hurts and our prejudices. That we overcome our attitudes by the power of your love. 
God, let us see that as we come together and here and, and with other believers in the community, with believers around this world, this is what exalts you. This is what is lifts you up as our Savior and as our God. This is what praises your name. And God, we want to praise your name. Because we have been the recipients of your great love and your great blessings. God, would you show us this week the people we need to look at from across the room and remind ourselves God loves that person. Help us to start practicing this discipline. Help us to start praying about it and to be strengthened toward loving others as Paul prayed for us. Oh God, we do want to be a part of what you're doing in this world. God, we do want to be filled with you. We want Jesus Christ to feel absolutely at home in our lives. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. Let me ask you today, do you know that Christ is living in your hearts? You know, I'm not asking, do you know for sure that he's comfortable? We all need to ask that, don't we? Man, I wonder if Christ was comfortable in my life this past week. But I'm asking you right now, do you know that Christ is there at all? That he is living in your life, that you are a child of God. If you do not have that security, could I encourage you today to step forward, to come forward as we stand up and sing and tell one of these pastors, I want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can only know that you don't have that because God is speaking to you right now. And if he's speaking to you, he's calling you. Step out on faith and come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe today you know you've been praying and you know God's been leading you to become a part of this church family. Well, at this time, we open the doors of our home and we invite you to become a part of our family as we together as one seek our God and seek to become followers of his son, Jesus Christ. So as we stand and as we sing, Jesus is inviting you into a relationship with himself. Is he inviting you into this church family? If he is, you